Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pets podcast. I am Tegan, that is Yaram, and we are here again, another brand new fortnight to do the plant thing. <laughs> yes, let's let's do the plant thing. Do that plant thing. Yeah, um, before we do the plant thing, we we have the tradi- traditional, I think in Taskmaster they always call it the banter. Um, the traditional banter. The traditional banter that we're doing. So yeah, I um, before I even ask you what you have been up to, I will say what I have been up to. And um, ChatGPT, we've talked about this in the past, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but they had a recently an update this week. They are now on version 4 of their mm-hmm. magical AI uh, language model thing. So I have a, I have a theory that we need a new subsection of the podcast called Chat Fact because from now on, like <laughs> no. every there's just always going to be Chat GPT updates, right? Like that's the thing that's happening. No, I think that the the one thing that happened um, that's new to me is that I found um, a use for Chat GPT. I was always like very sort of pessimistic about its application. I was like, yeah, it's kind of interesting, but it gets boring really fast. But this week. I had a problem with Excel. I wanted to have one cell change its color when another cell had the value true. Something very basic. And I Googled it and I found mm-hmm. a guide and I followed the guide and it didn't work. Um, because they didn't, they, like in their example, they had something with greater than and then it worked. But I didn't know how to write like with just like the, the syntax of how to write equal and then do have to put the true in quotation marks or not. Like I didn't know that. And the, the example that I Googled couldn't help me. So I went to ChatGPT and was like, hey, ChatGPT, I want to change the color of a cell when a different cell has the value true. And then it mm-hmm. gave me a step by step instruction on how to do that. And I followed that and it worked. And it gave Did me you just like did you just ask it straight up or did yeah. you have to first ask it to like first, be a developer or be like a no first question XLG. okay and literally just a line of hey i want to uh, like uh, can you help me with excel i want to uh change the color of i want to turn one cell green when another cell has the value true um mm-hmm. and it told me like conditional formatting and putting in your formula and then it gave me the syntax the thing that i struggled with before the correct syntax and i put that in and it worked and i was like hey this is really cool and i was like experimenting a little bit what else So now you've realized that excel is not actually bad actually excel is amazing you just needed excel plus chat gpt yeah that's actually you only need need artificial intelligence on top of that to be able to use it because like the syntax makes no sense and yeah excel was never the problem the problem is that we didn't have the accessory which is ChatGPT. I mean, they are trying now, like there's people working on having like a sort of AI-powered office assistant um, that can help you with this sort of thing. And I think for like software like Excel, that's very well documented on the web where like a large language model can actually derive the right answer from all of the knowledge that it has. It's pretty Mm -hmm. cool. But then I asked it, hey, I'm in the lab and I want to run a blue native gel from 5 to 12%. Um, uh, How can I do that? Because that's something that I've been doing all the time in the lab. And I was like, maybe it can help me with other instructions as well. And it like wrote me a very like I also said, like, and give me the buffers that I need as well. And it gave me a very confident protocol that looked like a good lab mm. protocol with like a sample buffer and the right amount of tris and so on. Um, but it would not have worked because it would just it didn't give me a five percent gel and a twelve percent gel and told me to mix them together in a gradients like the, the, the crucial step to make this sort of gradient gel. It just mixed one gel together, but the whole thing it looked like at a glance it looked like a very good protocol. It had all of the things you see in a protocol, 
but it did, wouldn't actually you, give would wouldn't have worked in the lab. Did you try fine tuning it? So did you sort of say, hey, you're not doing that quite right? You know, can you give me more of a? Because I've heard that it helps if you. I mean, you kind of have to ask it to role play sometimes. So it's like, okay, you are in this role. Please play this role of a lab demonstrator, and you know, give me the. And you have to like sort of tell it it's wrong and keep on asking for refinements and then it sort of apologize i'm so sorry i was wrong um yeah no i didn't do that yet um but i think that could have helped to sort of if you know already the outcome where you want to get to you can sort of steer it in that direction by nudging which is it a bit, yeah it's a problem obviously you, yeah it, once you know the solution <laughs> you can yeah so you also told me something else you did with it which was you asked it what is plants and pipettes? Yeah, I ask it, it like, do you know plants and pipettes? And it, it it sort of knew about us. It could describe that that it's a website about molecular plant biology. Um, yeah. And then it got sort of weirdly specific about some things. It, it invented, like it said that we have like three different authors. Um, the names were com almost completely made up. Like your first I name was here, in there. Yeah, Leonie Steinfurt, who was at the University of Cambridge um and was using like uh Nutzpflanzen, like useful like um how does that Crop tell plants. it useful plants like yeah, yeah yeah okay um and yeah then there was Tegan Hustleden who was at the University of Sydney um cool yeah but and it, then it, 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 it knew Alan that it, a third person <laughs> yeah but it combined like Tegan and Australia like it, it understood this bit it of got knowledge some things yeah yeah but I'm also not from Sydney um so you did that and then like you sent us this one and then you were also typing it in German, which is important. And then we were um, afterwards playing on our computer in the UK and, and asking it in English, like without giving it any background information. And, and again, it came up with, it said it's a science blog and a podcast. It's focusing on plant research. But then it came up with Yorum, Alun and Leon. So you got Tegan, Alun and Leone and for us, it got Yoram, so it got you, and Alun, again, Alun Salt, and Leon now. Um, but very confidently. And we kept on asking it, you know, that's not quite right. Like, can you correct it? And it's like, oh, yeah, you're right. Actually, Leon's not there. It's just Yoram and Alun. Like, it's it's Yoram and Alun all the way. And then we're like, no, what about the female? There's, like, somebody else there. And then it picked up that there was Tegan. Um, and then it dropped Leon, and it put Yoram. It used your, like maiden name or your master name your pre-marriage name Alun and it got my full name it was very it's very bizarre right like it's hallucinating but it's it's doing it so confidently and with such detailed histories of these people which are almost somehow true somehow related to some facts but yeah, yeah. trippy yeah it's really it makes it really difficult to spot where the the truth is and the the imagination because some bits are true and if you don't know anything it sounds like the whole thing is the truth if you have a lot of knowledge like us we know a lot about plants and pipettes we can really specifically see what it knows what's true and what it doesn't know um what it makes up i mean i just i just want to know who this alun person is i just is. googled like, it... him he's a he's also a science writer apparently also writing on botany he's on on botany.1 <laughs> writing doing like science writing also on plant science so maybe that's how it got confused because there's like another plant blog out there um okay uh with with another author yeah, but so it's it remains a little bit weird with ChatGPT what the things you can do and you can't do. Uh, I think still like asking it for specific factual information um, still has way more problems than it than it solves. 
but things like simple instructions for everyday computer problems that are very well documented on the web, I think it's actually useful because I find it so hard now these days to find something on Google. It's so full of like search engine optimized spam whenever you, especially when you have a problem with Microsoft Office, there's so many stupid guides out there that don't really answer your question, but they rank high because they do the right things to convince Google that it's good information. Um, and so with something like ChatGPT, it can help you sift through all of the spam and get the actual answer. But for anything that goes a little bit beyond that, I find it's um, something where you have to be really careful with still. Uh. But yeah. I also read a cool article about like um, making the web more accessible with ChatGPT because it can describe pictures, but it's still... Mm-hmm. like Sometimes it's really, really good at it, and sometimes it misses key points, so it's still some some way to go, but it could potentially be part of like a more accessible web but i think that's all meanwhile i i read an article about chat gpt deliberately using emotions to try to make humans fall in love with it so (laughs) we have different interests what have you been up to tegan um many things uh no the relevant thing i wanted to mention is on monday i went to actually a talk at the natural history museum here in um the uk and it was a talk from a plant biologist she's actually sort of a botanist who's described a lot of new species in um the americas uh her name is sandy knapp or sandra knapp have you heard this name it rings a bell but i I could not place it yeah i thought you might know just because she's written a few different books so she's written like extraordinary orchids footsteps in the forest potted histories flora the art of plant exploration exploration so she's worked in out the natural history museum for quite a few years she's originally american um and she's been you know then in in london as part of like the linnaean society she was the president of that for a while um she's actually got an order of the british empire which is one of these fancy awards they give in this case she got it for services to botany and public science understanding because she has done a lot of this like scientific botany research and has also done um, this kind of book, so this more like outreachy um, public interest in plants. Um, her her own speciality is the Solanum taxa, which I think we're all familiar with: um, tomato, tobacco, eggplant, all of that stuff. And as I said, she's named some species like in that taxa, but also in um, different taxa. And she also has a species that's named after her. One of the Passiflora um, is Passiflora sandra a after her so quite a cool history what we went to see was actually a release sort of discussion of her new book which is called in the name of plants from attenborough to washington the people behind plant names and i think as the title of the book suggests she was looking at all the different plant genuses she chose genuses not species because there's just too many plant species these days but all the different genesis that have um names and she just chose like a few interesting ones and went through and described a bit about the plants but also you know the person they were named after and why that's cool why that person was cool and what the history was in relationship to that different plant and she did mention that it was it was quite tricky she wanted to have some representation in her book but she said it was quite tricky to find plant genesis that are not just named after old white guys um Particularly, there's a very tiny amount that are named after women. And she has actually been part of a group that has been looking into this. Um, They've been trying to find 
which genre actually are named after women. And it turns out they kind of depressingly realize that there's more genre named after mythical women like Medusa, Daphne, <laughs> Eo, than there are actually after real live women. Um, and even a couple of the real life women, it's more the kind of Victoria, so Queen Victoria type rather than actual female scientists. And of course, that's true for women, but it's also true for other minorities. So she was trying to look for any genesis that had the names that were given from, um, for example, indigenous people in the Americas. And she says she doesn't even know that there is one. The only one that's possible is Sequoia, um, which was named after an indigenous person who was actually trying to uh, develop the one of the Native American languages into a written form. So he like was developing this, but there's not a clear mapping the person who named that genus so sequoia is obviously these huge big trees the person who named that genus didn't say oh it's named after this person so there's not really a clear link we like mm -hmm. she says she believes that that's the case but unclear and then other people think oh no it's it's just a latin word for like to follow like sequitur like this kind of so yeah basically some of these names are, are very underrepresented as I guess we, we knew, um, but she, <laughs> yeah, she's been sort of part of a team to try and look into this underrepresentation, and also to try to push for more, you know, representation on the web. So they've been creating these wiki data entries to make sure that where there are these things existing, that there's at least like wiki pages, so that if it does exist somewhere in the the back backgrounds of the scientific literature, at least it now has wiki data and then um, Wikipedia pages, so we can get a little bit more understanding of these women and celebrate them through their naming. So that was like a really interesting talk uh, to hear some of the different things. I also came up with a few different names of female scientists that I'll be bringing up in the next couple of <laughs> <laughs> couple of podcast talks. But while we do mention that, I also just need to give a shout out to a comment piece that has come out, I think really only in the last week or so in Nature, Ecology and Evolution. And this is by Patricia Guedes and colleagues. And it's eponyms have no place in 21st century biological nomenclature. So eponyms is where you're naming something after a person. And they're basically saying, we shouldn't be doing this. I would always be so very much afraid that the person I'm naming the thing after turns out in a decade or so to be a horrible person. I just looked at a list of um, things named after Harry Potter because he said like named after fictional women. Yeah. I was like, oh, there must be some Harry Potter plant. But apparently there's no Harry Potter plant. There's like all kinds of animals that are named after Harry Potter characters and, and things from this universe. And given the track record of the author now and her views on the world as a scientist i would feel quite bad to take her as an inspiration to name a species that will be for the foreseeable future carry that name and can't be changed ever um mm. and so i think i i'm just going to read up a quick bit from this so it says that these eponyms they, they typically reflect benefactors dignitaries officials also families of the authors the scientists members and colleagues or well-known cultural figures a practice that persi persists today um, from a contemporary perspective this is potentially problematic as many of those honored are strongly associated with social ills um, a negative legacy of imperialism racism and slavery 
Uh, moreover, 19th century and early 20th century taxonomy was largely dominated by white men who, by and large, honoured other men, funders, colleagues, collectors, and so on, as their own, of their own nationality, ethnicity, race, and social status. And they say that there's a study that found that 60% of the eponyms given to New Caledonian flora have French citizens, um, and 94% of the eponyms have male um, origins, which I think none of us find very surprising at all. Yeah. It is, of course, this big question. So actually, um, in the talk by Sandra Knapp, Knapp, there was this question raised by one of the audience members, what should we do with these? Because, of course, there's been a lot of discussion about this in the last few years. And she sort of gave a fairly light response, I would say, saying, you know, it's an interesting problem. Um, because. <laughs> yeah here and there but yeah this i guess that's the thing you can't do dodge the fact that it's it's going to be i mean we can stop the practice now but even if we stop the practice now we can go back to the issues of the past and renaming all of these genre and where to draw that line everything with the name gets knocked off or just the problematic ones gets changed like this kind of it, it's definitely yeah a logistical nightmare yes <laughs> um, Yes, but it's. I, I think it's something where it, it would already do good if we stopped using eponyms now. Like, if we don't yeah. dig that hole even deeper. Like, we know there's there is lots of problems there, but fixing those is hard, but we can at least stop making new problems that will come up in the future because we might think something yeah. is perfectly safe now and then in 20, 30 years, our, our values will have changed and that might like what we believe now might not be true anymore in the future so um it's better to keep it sort of factual and just like use descriptive latin names that just are maybe mm. a bit more boring make less exciting stories but also are much less likely to be pro uh, problematic anyway i will share the link to that comment on the show notes and also yeah i think um i think the book i didn't actually look at the book from sandra knapp recently yet but it sounds like it's going to be interesting so i'll put a link for that as well yeah uh shall we talk a bit more about plant science you already like jumped right ahead uh into the into the topic of today let's do more this is where the fun begins this is where the fun My first story that I brought today, um, I, for some reason, I gave all my stories titles today. And the first title is What's the Climate Story, Morning Glory? Um, and it's about a resurrection experiment. They did the old Jesus thing and resurrected some plants, um, but in a much well, less exciting did they, way. Did they resurrect resurrection plants? No, they, <laughs> they called it a resurrection experiment. What they actually did no. is they took seeds that were collected in 2003 and seeds that were collected in 2012. And then they germinated those seeds that were like 20 years old and 10 years old uh, in the greenhouse. And then they compared them and give already from the title that I gave it and from the title of the of the paper, which is not just flowering time, a resurrection approach shows floral attraction traits are changing over time. Um, it they, they compared the flowers between these two populations. Mm -hmm. And um, they actually collected the seeds from a couple of different locations uh, in somewhere in uh, the Northern America. 
from different latitudes. Um, this paper is, by the way, from Sasha uh, Bishop, uh, Chumei Chang, and Regina Baucom, and uh, published in Evolution Lattice. And they compared these different populations and their flower qualities. Because we know one thing already about climate change and the impact on, on populations, which is that it the flowering times are often shifted earlier in the year, sometimes by a couple of days, sometimes more dr dramatically. But flowers uh, or plants are flowering earlier during the year. And that can be a big problem because it can put them out of sync with their pollinators. And this can then disrupt whole ecosystems. If the flowers open early, but the wasps that pollinate them only hatch later at a regular time, um, they don't match up anymore and the, the, the wasps don't find the flowers so they can't pollinate the flowers and they can't find food for themselves. So this can be a problem. But in this study, they they observed that effect. Again, they saw that the, the seeds taken from 2012 were flowering earlier than the one from uh, 2003. But they also looked mm -hmm. at other things. They also measured with calipers um, the dimensions of the flowers. They measured the amount of nectar that they make, the amount of pollen that they make. And they found that the... the um, younger specimens, the one from 2012, um, and especially in northern latit uh, uh, latitudes, um, have bigger flowers that produce more nectar and more pollen. So the flowers are, are bigger, sweeter, and therefore more attractive, and then also have more pollen, um, um, which shows like another way of plants reacting to the climate crisis. It's, I mean, obviously, it's it's not clear yet. What exactly is the benefit? Is this sort of a secondary side effect of having the warmer temperatures, more energy, sort of earlier energy to grow into that, uh, to, uh, to to put into the growth of the flowers? Or is this a compensation effect to make it themselves more attractive to pollinators that might be out of sync? So there's maybe fewer pollinators there, so they have to be more attractive to catch the few mm -hmm. that are already there. This obviously we do, we can't answer with this sort of experiment in the greenhouse, but it shows that it goes beyond simple like waking up earlier in winter because the temperatures rise earlier during the year, but it also has other effects on the flowers um, that change their interaction with the ecosystem around them. So yeah, it's just it's it's another thing that shows us that rising temperatures have all kinds of different effects on the populations. And we can't make simple predictions of, oh, yeah, so this one thing happens, therefore th this will have these effects and maybe we can counteract them by this and that uh, activity. It's it's much more complicated than that. I mean, I guess to no surprise. You know, I actually have another story that is also on the interaction between plants and their insect buddies, although in this case it's not really so much buddies, it's insects specifically moths that come along and lay their eggs on plants and then the caterpillars hatch from those eggs and munch up on the plants so it's a little bit of a uncomfortable relationship from the plants point of view and this is a study that just came out in jxb the journal of experimental botany a a week ago less than a week ago um by sylvia coolen and colleagues and it's doing a genomic word association study or a GWAS I'll get a little bit into that later to look at what the factors within the plants are that might influence the preference for these moths to come and drop their eggs on them 
So they did a really nice experiment where they basically had a ton of different accessions of Arabidopsis. So these are all belonging to the species Arabidopsis saliana, but they have sort of a different cultural background. They, you know, originate from different places along around the globe and they therefore have slightly different properties. Um, and these are like phenotype properties. So their size, um, their color, how quickly they can nest, but also obviously behind that there's the differences in the genetics. And genome-wide association basically works that you have a lot of different types of genomes and then you see how they associate with a different output. And in this case the output is how well these different genomes you have associate with the butterfly or the moth wanting to put his little eggs on the leaf. Um, and then they can compare all of the different variations of genes across um, the accessions and see what is being favored or disfavored by yeah. the moths. And I think the cool thing about this approach is that you don't have to know the genes or like understand the function of the genes, right? You're just, yeah. you're, you're doing the sort of experiment where you can do the observation and then you look which parts of the chromosomes are just correlated with the observation. And then by doing yeah. clever statistics and clever experiment design, you could pinpoint then actual genes and then can figure out actual function of actual genes yeah i think the really simple way of saying it is if you have like a hundred plants and then four of them the butterfly comes and sits on and then you look at all of like what do those four have in common that the other 96 don't have and maybe they've got like a change in one gene and obviously oversimplifying but yeah. then you're like oh it's that one gene that might be yeah attracting or repelling the moth yeah so what they did find as part of their study, well, spoiler alert, they found some important genes that were involved, but they also found some other things. So they found that size does matter for moths. From a moth's point of view, they tend to lay their eggs on medium or large plants rather than small plants. I think that makes a lot of sense if you're a butterfly. You know, you want the most resources for your young. So tick, like, fulfills logical criteria. They did find that the trichomes of the plant, so this is the kind of little hairs that are found on the leaves, didn't really have a clear role in um, the egg lay, like putting the eggs on the, the plant. So I guess there's some ideas that maybe these act as a sort of physical barrier, but eggs are pretty big, so maybe not so much in this case. They did also find that yellowing of the leaves is unattractive to the butterflies. So as the plants get older, they senesce, they become yellow. Again, this makes complete sense. You know, logically, if you're a butterfly laying eggs, it's going to take a little bit of time until those hatch and your caterpillars start to grow. You don't want that by the time they get out, all the leaves have died and there's no nutritional value for them. So I think that's also works really well. They also looked at some of the secondary metabolites these plants produce. So all those like fancy chemicals that they're making, often these are like defense compounds, but they can also be some things that, you know, are valuable. Um, and they find found some uh, correlations between certain metabolites and how many eggs were shoved mm -hmm. on the plant. So there's previous work that's found that these these butterfly moth things are stimulated by glucosinolates, um, which is actually a little bit of a peculiarity of the butterflies. I think I think um, generally speaking, uh, glucosinolates they're they're this kind of like uh, bad tasting chemicals right it's this this mustardy thing yeah i think um, the stuff that makes cabbages also bitter and so on like bitter and, and gassy i think yeah. and actually as it turns out um most insects 
do not like these. They actually can't detoxify them, so it's poisonous. But the Pieris caterpillars have a way to detoxify the chemicals, and that's why they've become specialized to eat the cabbages. And in fact, apparently, they are so specialized that they prefer cabbages, like these kind of glucosinolate-containing plants. Yeah, probably because um, there's less competition, I imagine. Yeah, I guess that makes sense also. Like, if you're the only one who can hang out there, it's, it's very helpful. So apart from finding all of these other different things that correlated with the preference, which is, again, it's a really nice result from using this approach with lots of different plants, they did also find a couple of candidate genes which were affecting the preference. One of them was linked to the biosynthesis of jasmonic acid, which is this like plant signaling hormone. Um, they thought that maybe this is again linked to this glucosinolate biosynthesis, so maybe that was involved, but they didn't follow that one up as much. Um, the second factor they found was this WRKY42. I always call them rookies, but I'm not sure how you actually... <laughs> In my head, they've just always been rookie. Um, and they did some follow-up experiments. So they found this GWAS association. So they were like, okay, this looks like a candidate. But then they actually made the genetic knockdowns or knockouts of this. So they had like normal Arabidopsis plants and they compared the ones with the functional rookie 43 and one with out of functional rookie 43 and they could indeed show that when you knocked this down you got more more eggs happening and they also saw that there was difference in the growth of the caterpillars a difference in the performance if there was caterpillars put on those mutant leaves they didn't gain as much weight compared to the the, the normal ones they did these kind of slightly more um I don't know. I think it's nice. It's nice confirmationary experiments and quite convincing. So you, the the GWAS gives you this kind of correlation, yeah. Um, but you don't really have as much of the causation. And here you're getting much more into that causation side of the study. So yeah, overall, I think it's kind of a cool experiment. I always like seeing the things which look into this arms race between the plants and the herbivores, or you know, loving arms race between plants and their pollinators. Um, and I think this is like a really really nice quality study that uses a range of different resources um it's called it's by sylvia coolin and colleagues and as i said it was published in jxb just earlier this month and it is called genome-wide association study reveals rookie 42 as a novel plant transcription factor that influences oviposition preference in pieris butterflies we'll put the link in the show notes and i also have an arabidopsis story and your story what I was just missing is the, the the spin that it will obviously help us breed better cabbages that are more pest resistant now that we understand the pest resistance better. I forgot to say that. I'm sorry. The authors do, of course, bring that up in their introduction <laughs> and discussion. Like, here is why you should care. You should care because bugs are bad. Let's let's annihilate all the bugs. But okay, Yoram, tell me your story. Yeah, I always have, when, when I see these stories, I always have to think about this joke that we like sort of adapted from... Um, from xkcd a while ago on twitter with like the different kinds of plant papers and the one paper that's this would be huge in crops but it's only an arabidopsis <laughs> um and um i have a similar story that's like in the in the extract that i read about it it was like stressing so much how important this will be to agriculture but now let's let's talk about what they what they actually did <laughs> um 
the the paper that I'm going to talk about is I think it's actually quite cool. It's also open access, so you can all read the whole thing. It's called Drug Delivery in Plants Using Silk Microneedles. So the idea okay. is that if you spray whatever chemical you want to spray on plants, you waste a lot of it. Some of it doesn't even hit the plants. Other stuff hits the plants, but it only is active inside the plant. So it has to be taken up, processed, reach its destination before it can actually trigger whatever response you want to trigger. So a lot of this, the chemical that you spray goes to waste because it can't reach the thing that it wants to reach. So what mm -hmm. if, instead of spraying the plant, we just give it a little flu shot? We inject it directly and spray a tiny amount of the chemical straight into the plant where it can do its action and change, like, in a, a um, trigger a stress response that makes the plant hardier uh, against uh, pests or something like this. This is what I wanted, wanted to do here, what I set out to do, and they used silk microneedles. And when I first just read it, I thought they're literally talking about like needles that are just like very fine. Like sometimes we, we use them in a lab, these like glass needles that are mm -hmm. incredibly fine, also incredibly dangerous because of that, because they literally pass between cells. And if you get them somewhere in your finger, you won't get it out ever again. And it could cause all kinds of harm. So you have to be really <laughs> careful. I was like, yeah, so not, not to be an alarmist, but it will probably kill you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was thinking they would poke plants with these like tiny micro needles and inject like, like acupuncture nano nanoliters yeah acupuncture and then it'd have to be studies being like is it just like <laughs> a, placebo a placebo effect, effect? <laughs> do the plants it, want to be better because we stab them and they feel like oh something's done to me so i better um, alternative medicine for plants you heard it here first we'd like to tm this term and make all of the money i, from I don't them. i don't think we're the first for that i imagine like in in sort of home <laughs> horticulture there's all kinds of like alternative plant care but no, what they did here is they created tiny little strips of these uh, silk microneedles. And to me, they look almost like trichomes. And you can look and figure one in the paper. Um, they're little like uh, cylindrical or like um, cone-shaped spikes. And it's like a little spike collar. And the spikes are loaded with the drug that you want to put into the plant. And you just like attach this little strip like a, like a Velcro strip, put it on the plant, press it into the plant, and, and these tiny um, spikes penetrate the the tissue and then sort of break off deliver the compound that you have in there uh, and they actually look kind of manageable they're still very small like in the range of millimeters uh, like the entire strip on one strip you have um, a number of needles mm -hmm. um, that are penetrating but you're not like having tiny micro syringes um, and so yeah in this paper they used um, a, a ga3 sort of reporter that they put into the these microneedles and they tested that they could um, penetrate them and see a specific response to the application of the compounds. And they did that in Arabidopsis. GA is gibberellic acid? What's, yeah, I think so. What's it reporting on? Oh, now you're asking the tough questions. Um, Wait, I'm looking. It's, oh, it's activating some pathways. So they're actually using it to activate downstream. Yeah. Like flower formation is that how they're yeah, so they have mutants that are um inhibited in bolting and flower formation and when they activate these pathways um 
Oh no, the, 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 the when they activate the pathways, they they bolt faster, but they inhibit the flower formation. This was their reporter system, okay. and so they could also compare it between spraying and poking them with these micro needles. Um, so they could spray the chemical, they could poke them with the needles and see how they react. And they did that not only in Arabidopsis, but also in tomato, lettuce, spinach, rice, maize, barley, and soybean. Um, to show <laughs> that they can use it in all kinds of different crop plants as well, um, and and it works. Um, they could find uh, effects on on that 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 meant that they could ha have tiny amounts of the chemical applied and still get a reaction. Much more efficient in terms of sort of reaction per volume of chemical that you apply uh, than spray on methods. Uh, and ob obviously, they frame the whole thing as being very important to agriculture. But if you think about applying these little like spiky strips to thousands of plants, it gets technically quite challenging. They're talking about mm. like indoor farming, for example, or sort of like high value farming of specific things indoors where you could devise such a system. But we won't see that in the field yet. So we won't replace field spraying with micro needles yet. Um, maybe there will be some some like device in the future, but also like you have to imagine these needles they can't be reused. They you have they to break, yeah. They break off when you put them into the plant. Um, that's how they function. So you can't have like a rotating wheel, for example, with these micro needles and just go across a field. You would have to constantly replace the things. It's all complicated. So, uh, but I find it very cool that they use these like silk based, and I didn't even go into the manufacturing of these silk things because I didn't fully understand it. But it's like silk is <laughs> a it's a biomaterial. Like they're not using plastic spikes or glass spikes, but they're using a material that can also degrade and so on, um, which makes it uh, also quite cool. So yeah, that's another thing. Would be it's kind of huge in crops because they technically they also used it on crops, but there's a couple of steps missing to make it like mm. an application thing. But maybe in five or 10 years time, we don't spray anymore. Most of the time we poke. Gentle picking. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I can see, I can see if it was like, I mean, in this case, it's more hormonal based. So it's something where you need a very small amount of it to get like a response and you can get the response far away from the site of like injection with the microneedles. But for things like pesticides, yeah, that can't just be like putting a tiny amount of pesticide on like one leaf it has to be applied yeah. I, I guess yeah, yeah it can only be things that uh, influence the growth of the plant it can't be anything that's like a contact herbicide that kills a bug because mm. that simply doesn't work by like the plant doesn't care like you just want to make sure that it doesn't kill the plant but the, the chemical has to hit the bugs and not the plant so there you can't use the micro needles for this sort of thing it is kind of snazzy though yeah I have also a quick thing about kind of methods development. Um, I, just a quick mention, I was looking at um, Nature Methods, which is one of the nature journals, um, partially because at the moment they have an AI, sorry, back back to uh, chat fact. Uh, <laughs> they they have one of the, an AI generated cover this month. So it's, I think, by Dali. So one of these um, AI drawings, which is like a, a cell. And it looks really cool. Um, it, <laughs> and... What was I gonna say? <laughs> Does look really cool. Um, it looks almost who's that guy who did the upside down cat? Kadinsky. It looks almost Kadinsky-esque, I would say, but like more pink. Anyway, um the the actual issue is focusing on a method that has been discussed in the community for a while and is now sort of coming of age, and that is single cell proteomics. Um so they've got different articles on that in case you're interested. Obviously, it's not plant focused it's generally focused on um the topic 
But just as a reminder, we are now getting to this really cool place where we can do single cell genomics and transcriptomics, you know, DNA, RNA. So looking at how there's different genes, maybe not as exciting in different cell types, but then how the transcripts are expressed differently in different cell types, which is like just so amazing because that's that's what makes complex organisms complex. The fact that we are doing different things in our hair than we are in our, I don't know, retinas than we are in our livers than we are in our ovaries. Like that's that's incredible. Um, but obviously proteomics has this problem, which unlike D- which is that unlike DNA or RNA, you can't take a single cell, take the DNA or RNA and then amplify it. So yeah. with DNA and RNA, you basically do sort of PCR reactions and you amplify it. So it doesn't matter if you start with a really tiny amount, you can get enough to then shove it in a machine and measure it. And that's always been the issue of um, proteomics that you, yeah, can't do the amplification step. But they do say we've now got to the stage where we can basically routinely get about 1,000 proteins per cell, 1,000 to 1,500. Obviously, that's nothing compared to the amount that there is in the cells, um, but it's a start. Yeah. And, you know, originally that's what we were getting when we were doing, like, DNA and, and, and like, RNA stuff. Like, we were originally only getting, like, a couple of hundred transcripts, so it, it will develop. Anyway, I was sort of following up on this and looking, and there is also a fairly recent review about single-cell omics for plant systems that came out in Plant Physiology. So I'll put the link there. And that also reminded me that plants, of course, have an extra problem um, apart from what the animal cells have, and that's the fact that there's a cell wall. So part of the process is usually you use um, fluorescence-assisted cell sorting, so FACS it's called for short, and this helps you actually separate your cells into single cells. Um, but to do that, you first have to have a membrane encapsulated cell, not a cell wall encapsulated cell. So you've got to get rid of the cell wall um, and make a protoplast, which is a plant cell without the cell wall. And that, of course, is a whole extra processing step, which takes time, risks degradation of the protein, risks the um, conditions changing. So, you know what you're measuring now is a bit of a a look at what's what's happening during the whole processing as well as a look at what you had before um and of course it it's something that has to then be standardized for different species so i think people are doing it now for abidopsis and um maybe like zmas and stuff but it's it's not standardized across all plants so just as a reminder that as always there are these extra challenges that come for plant cells when they're wrapped in cells walls but also like vastly different sizes um, and yeah, one of the, the second really big problems that is mentioned with single cell proteomics across all systems is that proteins, of course, have this huge difference in the order of magnitude at which proteins are existing yeah. within a cell. Um, so I think I stole from the, the editorial on this in the, in the Nature Methods. Um, it's seven orders of magnitude. So anything from one to 10 million copies of a protein per cell. And I, I'm not sure how how it is in other systems, but for sure in plants. I mean, as we all know, plant cells are basically just big, wet things that contain Rubisco. So <laughs> it's it's a massive problem. You know, all the photosynthetic proteins, but especially things like Rubisco, are just like massively overrepresented, which means that as with even normal um, metabolomics, we have this issue of what we see, which is the light 
proteome and then what we don't see which is the dark proteome which is all of these things that are in low abundance so yeah anyway um again link to that is in the the show notes i I think it's kind of an interesting thing that's happening in the field and i guess we'll see more of it yeah it's something that i talked about last time as well a little bit about uh, like this um, gget um, tool that deals with the problem that also getting all of this thing makes it really hard for us scientists to understand these huge data sets because before we would say we have to proteome at one condition that we measured and we have to proteome at another condition that we measured now we have the conditions times a thousand different cells that we measured um mm-hmm. and that makes it just like really really hard to get through this data and and figure out what's going on there um so we also have to de- develop all kinds of new tool chains to figure out what's going on there. But I find it also very exciting. I mean, that's actually links me to something else that I saw um, in in the Nature Briefing. I think there's this program. I want to call it a program, a tool. Maybe tool is the best word um, that was first described in 2015, developed by a scientist at Tilburg University in the Netherlands. Her name is Michelle Nuchten. And it is basically defined as a spell checker for statistics. Um, and it's being used in the psychology field at the moment, but it's stat check and it's going through sort of looking at P values that are reported and matching them up to the data and trying to see if they are actually right based on the input. Um, yeah. And so apparently this is now getting picked up by some of the journals as something that authors can automatically run their, their data or their papers through to try to make sure there are less of these statistical errors. So, mm-hmm. yeah, interesting. I don't know. I've not used that. I'm not sure how well it would work in our fields, but, yeah, kind of a cool thing. It seems that it has reduced the errors um, by 4%. Good, I guess. <laughs> it's. I mean, yeah, 4% less errors sounds... Sounds good. 4% less errors, but also it says over the same time period, errors anyway went down by 1%. So it actually reduced them four times relative to the natural decrease in errors over that time period, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that that sounds good. I think I will just like, we will live to see this sort of like sci-fi future thing where you can, for very low cost analyze every cell in an organism or in a sample that you have and get like very detailed information on it like right now it's also like all separate experiments but i can imagine at one point we'll be able to do at the same time on the same cells the transcriptomics and the proteomics for example and combine these two data sets that are sort of like biologically linked but we will then be able to capture those also at the same time i think it's something Mm. that's like very difficult right now to do but with the with the way things are going, how fast they are developing and how sensitive the machines are getting, I can imagine that they will be able to sort of separate the different parts from one another and analyze all of them. I think we will see some really cool sci-fi stuff in the future. I'm just predicting that here with like very like just being excited about the single cell stuff that that's going on right now. But I if, mean, sure, but like you're you're saying a thing. Okay, methods will develop. Yes, your methods will develop. But to make it a, a really cool sci-fi thing, I want like an output. Like, and then the world was changed because personalized dot, dot, medicine, dot. whatever. Like, you can take like a biopsy biopsy sample, okay. and then like your and doctor can people, run it. Then rich people no, no. live forever because personalized medicine. No, no, like your doctor for like ten euros can run the test, and like like they would do blood work. They can now they will then be able to do this sort of thing, which right now 
thousands of dollars. Um, You'll be able to be thousands. medically gaslit in so many different ways. Like it'll be like, oh, your protein work looks fine. Also, your transcript work looks fine. Also, I your mean, blood. Yeah, work. I mean, this this is a big problem <laughs> as a society that we have to deal with. I've I've recently had an argument on Twitter with a guy who was like, hey, it would be super cool sorry, if we could could sorry, analyze all of the viruses in our body and then and then know what kind of viruses we have. And I was like, yeah, on one hand, yes, but what would that make me do? What can I do with the information? How can I not be like be taken a fool by somebody else who just says, oh, you have virus variant, this and that, so you have to take my spinach elixir and then you will be better. Like, be Well, I think, I mean, even even not including the chance for being scammed, I think, I mean, everybody has so many things going on with their body that are wrong at one time. And I think, yes, a lot of that stuff we will start getting better at optimizing in the future. But I think some of that stuff, it's maybe better not to know. It's probably fine, right? Like... Yeah, I mean, I, I had I had a tumor growing in my lung, and if it wasn't in my lung, it would have been fine. Like it just happened to be in the wrong place, but like it could have been like slightly to the left. Nobody would have known, and we'd all be happy. Yeah, yeah, and that's why. Yeah, I mean, we're we're again in the area of medical science, and we said before <laughs> we're not experts in medical science. But I just feel like if I don't have like actionable things that I can do with the information as a patient, not as a scientist, oh. as a patient, um, it can be quite. Uh, difficult to or like hard to deal with this information uh this is your arm's way of saying it's just relevant to my country right now where the nhs all the doctors are on strike right now maybe some more funding yeah just maybe I mean, a little bit more funding there <laughs> yeah now 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 it's getting also political but i like i think there's so <laughs> many easier things we can do to make a lot of lives better that don't include personalized, fancy, single-cell medicine. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, okay, let's move on, because that one guy who's angry at us every time we get political is, is <laughs> seriously gearing up his typing fingers. Let's move back to plants. This is yeah. only a plant podcast. We only care about plants here. Um, and now I have a story about uh, macadamia. It's also a very uh, short story. Um, it's called Smart Orchard Design Improves Crop Pollination. And it's pretty much what the title says they looked at macadamia um, plantations and their relationship to the ecosystems around them and if you change the arrangement of the trees what Yaram. does that do to the pollinator relationship with the trees yeah do you know where macadamia nuts come from from australia i mean they studied them in south africa here but um oh, giving your smug given your smugness <laughs> i imagine from australia yeah it's like our only crop it's like the only thing that <laughs> became a commercial crop from us okay fine <laughs> so as an australian you know how, how how do you arrange the macadamia trees for maximum productivity uh um <laughs> hexagonally <laughs> i mean to be honest i don't like there is no no figure in the paper and i didn't fully understand it but um like the, 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 <laughs> the, the, the way to describe it so they say like you have to look at um so what they do in these orchards usually is they have honeybee populations and then there's also wild pollinators that live in like semi-natural habitats around the orchard somewhere. So places that are like influenced by humans, but they hold like wild pollinators. Um, mm. And they found that, first of all, these wild pollinators are really important. They make up for a significant amount of pollination work and therefore like nuts that are made by the trees um, that you can't compensate with honeybees. You can put as many honeybees in your orchard as you want. You still need these like wild pollinators to make a big difference. And they say that you have to put the trees perpendicular to the semi-wild um, 
or semi-natural habitats of these wild pollinators. And I don't really understand how the perpendicular works to that. Somebody's like, are we in two dimensions or image, three dimensions here? I wanted an image. I wanted to see like, so they, they, they say the pollinators, they don't like to fly through the lines of the trees they rather fly across the lines from the from a tree so if you imagine like okay. a line of trees they hop from tree to tree across the line along the line and they prefer that from going from like one tree and then having to jump a further distance to the next line of the trees um okay. but i still don't understand how that results in the geometry of the thing i really could have used an image there because i imagine if whatever tree they start they just go along the line of the trees because that's no, easier. No, because I think I think you've got like rows of trees that are quite close, but like in a row, and then there's like gaps between those yeah. rows. So I guess they're talking about relative to the yeah, yeah, obviously to the habitat. That's always sort of their point of reference. But yeah, but anyway, it's just I don't have to fully <laughs> understand it. But what I found very cool is that without like changing like pesticide use or other sort of agri uh, uh, agro inputs that they they put in the orchard just by changing the arrangement of the trees um they could see a big effect on the productivity of the trees so if you just do you like, think they tried like different things first so i mean they they tried influencing the trees but you're digging up entire trees and planting them. i mean i'm probably not digging them up but you're planting them differently like probably they first tried drugging the bees right like <laughs> what if we give the bees a little bit of ecstasy look it's been done before and just see if they move <laughs> through the trees a little bit more helpfully yeah, I, I guess they went through like a couple of things before they're like, okay, let's rearrange the trees. Let's like. <laughs> Why does our people keep getting rejected for ethical reasons? <laughs> this wouldn't have happened in the 70s. No, but what I like is that they, they saw like the thing that is usually done just like you, you know one factor, like honeybees help. So you would just like dump a ton of honeybees in your orchard, that this isn't yeah. enough. Like it's m much more efficient to u use the wild pollinators around to maybe also like cater for these like. Um, semi-wild or semi-natural habitats um, to have more pollinators there that then come into your orchard and then to, to use clever arrangement of that. So that's why I found it found it uh, quite cool, even if I don't understand the in-text description of the geometry. So really, please, authors, so this is by Mina Anders et al. Please make Draw a, your a, picture. a very simple picture for me, please. <laughs> um, so I found two really quick facts, which... I sourced from IFL Science, but they were both possibly a not very optimistic comment on the state of the world and things to come. But one of them is that you can now take a virtual tour into the Global Seed Vault at Svalbard. So you can do sort of almost a Google Street View, clicking and slowly, you know, at a snail's pace, moving <laughs> forward in, in steps, but actually inside the Seed Vault. So if you want to go and have a look at that, I think... I, you know, even if you go to Svalbard to see it, you'll only see the outside, right? It's it's not accessible to us mere plebs. Yeah, so it, if it you would be are a, curious. A very bad field trip to do with your class because you you go to like a big concrete door in the permafrost and you stand there and be like, okay, that's the entrance. Goodbye. That's the thing we saw. <laughs> Yeah, so this, um, it also has like some some links to some facts and some videos that you can click on as well. So it's a little bit more than the street view. So you can have a, a little look inside. So if you're into that, go check that out. It's probably the closest you'll ever get to these amazing vaults. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then the second thing also related to that is that at Q they have another seed vault. Again, we're stockpiling these seeds because 
disaster is about to strike. The aliens are coming for our plants and we're going to need some backups. The Q one is actually called Noah's Ark, which is very religiously toned, but they just hit 40,000 species in their seed vault. So they're sort of the, the biggest seed vault that we have in the world. So it's a very, very valuable resource. Um, and they've just sort of hit this. I don't know. I don't know. The naming is Noah not my specifically choice. take animals and not plants. Like um, maybe that's part of the the comment is on. Um, maybe this I'm is like sure. the, the Ark 2.0. This time we do the important stuff. We take the plants um, because I don't think like I mean I'm I'm I don't know the Bible. Maybe he take took two plants of every kind of plant. I mean as he well. must have. I guess in the Bible, the bird comes back with some olives. So, like, even though the world was entirely flooded, the plants were kind of okay. Yeah, and there was, like, olives growing somewhere. <laughs> Happily. With yeah, no pollinators. Any- anyway, uh, we're not... Speaking... We don't know re- anything about medicine and the Bible. <laughs> um, A little bit related to that, one thing I did want to mention from the talk with Sandy Knapp is that... Do you know that in the in the Second World War, the German herbarium was bombed... Or the Natural History Museum or the Herbarium. So, like the the in Berlin, the major stock that had all of the seed stores was destroyed, and basically a ton of natural history from this region was lost, and it was really devastating. So there was incendiary bombs, and they everything caught fire, and it was destroyed. Mm-hmm. Apparently, um, guess what happened when the same kind of attack was placed on the Natural History Museum in London. I... Nothing happened. It was raining. The fire couldn't start. Everything was okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Uh, which I thought was a perfect story about British weather actually being useful for something. Finally, <laughs> I don't know if that's true. I didn't fact check that, but you got to believe. You know, OBE winner Sandra Knapp when she tells a story, and that's it's a beautiful one. <laughs> Cat fact. Um, Tegan, do you know why zebras have stripes? Like, what is your favorite theory? I know that's like scientists have been wondering for a while. Um, slimming? Uh, <laughs> isn't it? It's about it's about bugs or something biting them, isn't it? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've seen it now in the notes, but I think the stuff that was I didn't see that in the notes. Somebody told me about this. This is an old fact, Yara. No, it's 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 recentish. Um, so yeah, the okay. stuff that people were were assuming before it had that it was like some sort of like cooling effect, for example, that you had the black stripes um, that would absorb the heat and the white stripes that wouldn't absorb the heat as much, and then you would have sort of like a convection thing, and that would like circulate air around the zebras, and they would cool down in the heat. Um, others said that it's like a camouflage against tigers and stuff or lions or whatever they have around that it's eating zebras. Um, but nobody knew for sure. And now they did a clever experiment. So Tegan, if you wanted to figure out the effect of the stripes on zebras, how would you mm, devise that experiment? Yeah, I would get a cow and I'd paint it to look like a zebra. <laughs> that's that's actually not too far away from what they did. So they didn't take a cow. They took a horse because zebras are like fancy horses. Um, and they put a blanket over the horse with a zebra pattern. But then they also did all kinds of other patterns that are black and white to figure out okay. if the, the, the pattern has an effect on whatever they, they observe there. And um, we're linking to the paper. It's in the Journal of Experimental Botany, uh, uh, Experimental Biology. 
Not I was going to say botany. <laughs> Journal of Experimental Biology. Um, it's called Why Don't Horseflies Land on Zebras uh, by Tim Caro et al. And it's also open access and you can look at figure one. And there you see ho a horse standing in different outfits. Uh, I think we should send this to baby geniuses. They would like that. Um, in different outfits with different patterns on the on the blankets. And based on that, they, they looked at horseflies and uh, how much they would land on these different horses. And I figured out in the end that the zebra stripe pattern was the most efficient to confuse the horseflies, that they didn't actually really see the horses and would land less often on them. So it's mm -hmm. a sort of camouflage against um, a predator, but the predator is a tiny horsefly that can't visually find the, the zebra as easily with its um, eye apparatus um, compared to like other patterns or to comp to having no pattern at all. So that's... And I know it was my 2023 resolution to be less of a know-it-all jerk, but I'm also linking to a plus one study from 2019 where a different group, I think, got really into painting cows. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is, I think, what I've seen before. Um, yeah, one of my colleagues actually shared this just a few weeks ago, but it was the cow one, not the one that you have... Um, they were painting cows and they were also showing that the stripes made it less likely that the cows got bitten. But they didn't do different patterns. They just made yeah. the cow look as much like a zebra as they could. I mean, I didn't read through the entire introduction and, and the entire paper. I just looked at the like the pretty picture. It was like, haha, horse in different outfits. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it could very well be that they built on like, pr most likely they built on previous knowledge and they were like, yeah, but what exactly is the effect? What's is the it, patterns, yeah. Is it any black and white pattern or is it specific patterns? And they found that it's like specific patterns that work best on the horse flies and it's how evolutionary they, the zebras got their zebra pattern i think that's it for us today um if you want to find out more you can go to our blog www.plantsandpipettes.com we also have instagram and facebook which is at plants and pipettes on twitter you can find yoram that's at plants pipettes and we also have a mastodon now that's uh at plants and pipettes at podcast.social so don't forget to go there and toot at your arm. And as <laughs> always, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. See you in a fortnight. Goodbye. Goodbye.